Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Don't Miss This Podcast, a Come Follow Me study with Emily Bell Freeman and David Butler. We fill this show up with all the things we think you don't want to miss in the scriptures every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm David Butler. I'm Emily Freeman. Welcome to Don't Miss This. This is our scripture study channel, a podcast, whatever it is, where we move through this year, the Old Testament, lesson by lesson, following the Come Follow Me curriculum, just pointing out some things that might be interesting to you, might be interesting to you as a teacher, as a parent, in discussion groups, just things we think you don't want to miss. It's so fun. We found out about a little group in Egypt that watches every week together. Hello to our Egyptian Part so of fun. our family community. Yes. It's so fun. <laughs> I want it to be a family instead of a community. Okay, that was funny. Okay, we're going to show you this. If you're new, this is a, a timeline. What we're going to do is just kind of, we've just finished row one, y'all. So you made it. And <laughs> and we're just going to kind of show what might be cool to do as a class or a group or individually or family, kind of just to review what's happening. Um, and then put on this week's piece. We put a piece on every single week. If you don't have this and want it, it's a free download that um, we made. And you can find the links to it on don'tmissthisstudy.com. You can find it on in our newsletter. Yeah, it's in our newsletter every, every week. week. It comes out. It's also linked inside of the app. Um, if you don't know, we have an app where we put all of our podcasts, videos, newsletters together all in one place. Plus a bonus each week of five little mini devotionals mm. that you can do first thing when you wake up or together with your family and stuff like that. If you want to know more about that app, it's um, don'tmissthisapp.com. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. So let's just kind of, um, let's kind of go through where we've been yeah, so this far. This is so fun. I love doing this with my seminary students where the Old Testament is so big and there are so many people in it that I love as we reach the end of every row to just stop and be like, okay, who did we meet? What did they do? What do we know about them? And we'll do this all through the year several times just to try and keep a hold of everyone. So we started out with meeting well, first Moses. First we started Moses 1, which was yeah. sort of like this is God's purposes and mm. everything that he's doing right at the very beginning, which yeah. was cool. Then the creation story where God creates this beautiful, organized cosmos. Then Adam and Eve's story where they wrecked the cosmos. <laughs> and they're the first people who came, Adam and Eve, they're the first people who were here and we go through their whole story and then we meet Enoch. And it's fun because we're first going to meet Enoch. His people are very wicked. Somehow through listening and following a prophet, they become righteous and go to heaven, Zion. So you kind of get almost like your first like explained redemption story with yeah. Enoch where it's just like, "Oh, in a wicked world, God can still redeem and do his work. And so you see that in Enoch and Zion's story. Then we get Noah, which is the same thing. A really wicked society, one prophet, but the outcome is different in this society. Instead of um, a righteous people being taken up to heaven, a flood comes and destroys the earth. And then Noah starts over again. It's almost like a new creation has started again, yep. right? You have the animals and the people who kind of come into the world again, like creation's yep. almost started over. And then we're going to meet Abraham, who is um, generations down from Noah through Shem. And, and maybe we should say this, that remember God promised to both Enoch and Noah, and he showed in their stories, 
I am never going to give up. I am not going to give up on the human family. I'm going to keep reaching out. I'm going to rescue. And the answer to that is going to be the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the family that is meant to take that rescue, to be God's messengers and ministers to the rest of the world, to prove that he's not giving up on them. Um, and you love here is where we start seeing the promise that we've heard here, here, and here, but this is where it really comes um, out in really clear detail. This is going to be the promise that is given to the covenant family through Abraham. And we meet Abraham, who is a God of promises. And we meet Isaac, who shows us a God of providing. And then we meet Jacob, who shows us a God who prevails. And Jacob has 12 sons. And today we are about to meet those 12 sons. And we're going to start with the story of Judah. And Judah's story actually starts, um, well, it doesn't start with this, but we learn a lot about Judah as we hear the story of a woman named Tamar. And that's where we're actually going to start, which might you might be surprised by. You might be like, who even is Tamar? And I don't see it's her <laughs> anywhere in what we're reading today. But we're going to um, introduce you to Tamar before we even start, because her lesson is super important to the story of Judah. It's also really important to the story of Joseph. And it's really important as we enter into the story of Jesus. So we're going to start today with this woman right here. And then Tamar. we'll end with the beginning of Joseph's story. So those are the two yes. kind of... Yeah, but we won't put this on till next week. Right, right. But so, just FYI. Tamar, Tamar only. Okay, I think we start Tamar's story in the book of Matthew, yep. actually. Yep. That's where we're going to look, is we're going to start there. So... If you go to Matthew 1, which is next year's study, so we're just getting you ready. <laughs> you know, we're a year ahead, y'all. And Matthew 1 starts off with um, the genealogy of Jesus. And it's interesting because Matthew doesn't give a complete genealogy of Jesus, but rather he handpicks um, just particular people as he moves through. And he does something that would have been really, like, uh, alarming might be the right word, totally unconventional for his time of writing, and that is he puts in the name of women into the genealogy. Now, of course, they do all the work in perpetuating the lines <laughs> of humans, you know, but um, it just was not common. So it would have stopped people in their tracks when they were reading this genealogy, and it, and it made you wonder, probably as you read it, like, wait, why did you put these women in and why did you pick these particular ones? But this is the genealogy of Jesus and it includes four women that... Um, five, really. Five, because Mary, Mary at yeah, the end. she comes in. That, um, But the four before Mary, um, we're going to call the grandmothers of Jesus oh, for the rest of the year. And this is going to be one of your favorite parts of studying the Old Testament with us. Um, because you know that I feel so strongly about calling out these women from the Bible. And that is why I did not want to miss Tamar's story, because these are Jesus's grandmothers. And not only is it shocking that they are in Matthew 1, written in this genealogy, but also their stories are a little bit unconventional, which is one of the things we love the most about these women and understanding where Jesus came from, but also who Jesus came for. 
is one of our favorite things. Right, and what he can do in unconventional circumstances and through like unexpected people. Like that is one of his hallmark traits, right? So if you just want to see these women in Matthew 1, we can point them out to you in the verses right now. Tamar, who we're talking about today, shows up in verse 3. You're going to notice that the spelling is a little bit different in Matthew compared to what it is in the Old Testament. That would be because of translation, just how things were translated. So we will point them out and you might want to just mark all four of these women. We'll get to Mary at the very end, but we're going to meet all four of these women just in the near future as we're teaching. So she's in verse three. And then if you Let, get let's to, read it. and so it talks Judas, about Judah. that's Judah, it says Judas, but it's who, Judah, who you know, he's going to have these two boys, Ferris and Zara of Tamar. So she's going to be the mom of those two boys. And so there she is right there. Then you'll continue the line, the family line down to verse five, and you're going to see that Salmon, that's cool. He's <laughs> going to have a um, booze, that's Boaz when we get to him, of Rahab. That's spelled Rahab in the Old Testament. And she's grandmother number two. And then they are going to have this son named Obed of, Boaz is going to have this son named Obed of Ruth. So you have two of the grandmas right there in verse five. Then in verse six, you're going to meet King David and talk about Solomon who comes from him. And then he's going to have Solomon with, and she's not by name here, just her that had been the wife of Urias, and that is Bathsheba. And she will be the fourth grandmother um, that we will meet right there. So Matthew gives these four women, calls these four women out and wants to associate them with the line of Jesus and wants to associate them with Jesus himself. And so we just think as we move through this year of the Old Testament, let's stop and focus on these women and consider why did he point, why did Matthew feel like it was so important to point out and highlight their particular stories? So we're going to start, um, we're studying 37 through 41 today. Genesis. I mean, Genesis, what did I say? Just nothing. So oh. it could have been any 37 <laughs> through 41. <laughs> we're studying Genesis 37 through 41 today. Um, Joseph's story starts in 37 and we're going to come back to that, but we start his story and then all of a sudden there is like this interlude that happens in 38. And then his story is going to pick right back up in 39 as if we didn't even have this little break. And lots of times we don't even study um, chapter 38. But one of the things that I love about chapter 38, this is going to be Tamar's story. And one of the things that I love about it is... It's going to teach us a really important principle that actually is going to help us understand Joseph's story better. And it's almost as if there is this little pause while we learn this really important lesson, which is going to be that God can fix what seems unfixable in a life. That is his capacity. That is what he is capable of doing. And we're going to see that in the story of Tamar. Now, if you read this story from the perspective of our time and our culture and our laws, it, it's really hard to understand. And in fact, you might think Tamar is the bad guy in the story. And there's going to be a couple clues that are going to help us realize that's not the case. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the things that we both like from the Torah 
and just kind of like the commentary from Jewish scholars is that it will point out some of those clues, but also make really clear that the Torah never condemns the actions of, and that would be important. Like it doesn't specifically point out and say that she is in the wrong. So, and it actually, there is one part in verse 26 where Judah acknowledges that she hath been more righteous than I. And if you're going to underline anything in Genesis 38, I would underline 26 just to help you remember, but we're going to explain some of these things to you as we go. So here are some of the things you need to know about the customs in order to understand and do you want to make, this story a little bit better. you want to fill this in, these things that are on this, um, the glue Let's in. talk about these and then we'll okay. do um, the glue in. So some things that you just want to know about that time period and those customs before we even get into this story is um, what, what the custom, the law, the covenant of that time was, is if you were a woman and you married into a family, so Tamar married into a family, she married the oldest son. Of Judah. Of Judah. So now she is in Judah's family. And the oldest son will die because... It tells us in in here, because of unrighteousness, God takes him. So what is the Levirate law is what it's called. And we read it in Deuteronomy is that that woman then is meant to marry the second son. And if they have children, that child becomes the heir of the first son with all of the rights and privileges and blessings of that. Well, Judah's second son was not super happy about that because if he doesn't have any children, he gets that privilege. And so he doesn't want to have any children with Tamar. And um, the, and the way he goes about doing this also provokes God. It makes God mad. And so he is removed from the family line. And then we get to this moment of what is going to become of Tamar. And the law and the custom was... Judah was meant to provide for Tamar. That that was the covenant that had been made. And she should have married his third son. But now there starts to be a lot of deceiving that takes place. And she is sent back to her family, which is not what was supposed to happen. And that is where we enter into this story. And I love that... um, You're going to see in our tip-ins that we have, but also you're going to find it just right there on our poster. As we meet these four grandmothers of Jesus, this will be our first one. And this is something you might want to put something similar to just this in here so you can remember. This was a grandmother. And what we know about her in this moment is that she was a widow and that she was neglected. And that the the promise was withheld from her. The law was withheld from her in that moment. Also, one other thing that we you might want to put in that we were just looking at these women all together before we started recording is she's actually a Canaanite woman. So um, Judah marries a Canaanite woman and then finds a Canaanite woman. Canaanite is kind of like the word that's used most often to talk about someone outside the covenant outside the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so she really is an outsider also. Um, and we kind of love that that is who she is. Now, on one hand, you could read this story, and some people do, and they see within this story adultery and this behavior that could destroy the social order. And we would read it like that today, 
without the understanding of what the law and the covenant and the culture was. With that in mind, then what we realize is that she was faithful to the, to that family, to the family of Judah and to the men of the family of Judah. And her action is going to actually be a noble thing that happens because she's living within the law of righteousness of, of what was meant to happen at that time. And so at the bottom of this tip in, we just wrote, this is a story of unconventional loyalty because Tamar is going to remain loyal to that family line. Because really, could she have just, I mean, it's hard to know because again, the past is a foreign country, right? We yeah. don't know exactly how all things happen there, but she gets sent home and could she have just like, well, I'll just find another family yes. to marry into. But yeah. she is so loyal to this first family, even though that family has been so harsh to her. Yes. She still has that like loyalty, loyalty and forgiving heart yeah. toward them. And I was reading in this book that I love so much by jo Joanne Skousen, and we will link to it. She says this, Tamar reveals that this was not an act of um, inappropriate behavior at all. Tamar knew that law and custom were on her side. As we shall see through her careful, clever plotting, she maneuvered Judah into keeping an important promise while she also prevented him from committing, committing a grave sin. And I love that part of what is happen, happening as we go through this next part of the story is Tamar is keeping Judah in line with his promise, with his covenant, with what is supposed to happen. And it's interesting because had Tamar not followed through with this, you, she wouldn't have been in the list of grandmas of Jesus's right. line. Yeah. You, she is part of what allows Jesus to come. And I love the thought of that. It's also cool to think of, you know, her being a grandmother of Jesus, which means you kind of think that Jesus inherits some of her characteristics and qualities. And I'm just so caught up on this idea that after everybody treated her so dirty, she should have just said, then forget all of you. I will go live my own life and I will do. But instead, like she does good to the people who did her wrong. That's so which good. Which is a, an, a characteristic of Jesus. Yep. If you wonder where that law comes from, that covenant law, it's Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 is where it tells you that, that Judah's responsibility was actually to... Tamar. That is just true. That was the covenant he had made. And legally, Tamar was a member of Judah's household and under his authority. And it's interesting to me that Judah feels comfortable leaving her as a widow, just walking away from her. And we're going to see that same thing again in Judah when we move to Joseph's story. He is comfortable leaving Joseph and walking away from him. There is something in Judah at the beginning that is okay with walking away from family and covenant and responsibility. And we see it first in the story of Tamar and we see it second in the story of Judah. And that's something God will reconcile in Judah at the end. And, and that's one of our favorite parts of this story. So that's what you wanna be watching for. Um, as we go through this story now, what happens is Tamar finds out that um, Judah, Judah's wife dies. And now that he is not married, 
it opens up an opportunity for that law, that covenant to be fulfilled through her. And so he's going to go away with the sheep and she dresses herself and veils her face. And in those days, that would be true of a harlot, but it would also be true of a bride. And so it's important to keep that in mind as, as we move forward. And I love that it talks about, she puts, um, she wraps herself up in this, and then she sits in an open place. That's in verse 14, and that's important. Tamar is not hiding. She, she does not go somewhere in darkness and, and cover herself. She sits in an open place because this is actually her right and her covenant. And I love that she enters in. She just knows what she's doing. And when Judah sees her, he thinks she's a harlot. And so he wants to come in under her tent and she asks him to give her a pledge at that time. And he gives her his ring and his staff and his signet. And then he leaves after that moment and, and goes forward. And he has said to her, I will pay you from my flock. I will pay you. So the second thing that we see that is important as we read the story of Tamar is he sends back this kid, this lamb for this woman. And when, when they come back to try and find her and they ask everyone, it says in verse 21, he asked the men of the place saying, where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they answer and say, there was no harlot in this place. And I love the double meaning there that I think again, and as we think about what it said in the Torah, that there is no sign of wrongdoing in Tamar. And I love that those men are like, there was not a harlot here. Mm. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of that place said that there was no harlot in this place, which is so interesting when you understand that full context of it's almost as if the Lord is trying to teach Judah right at the beginning. This was not a harlot. And, you know, you just see this hint of what is going on there. And so three months after Judah comes back and they find out Tamar is pregnant and she's going to be pregnant with twins. And as soon as Judah finds out, he says, bring her and, and she will be burned. That's the consequence for not being loyal to the family which is so interesting. Yeah, and it's not, the regular consequence was stoning. And if it was for a severe, severe crime, it was burning. So he's like asking for death penalty, like yeah. life sentence, highest highest charge against for her. For not being loyal to the right. family, which is so interesting to me. And so she brings out the signet and the bracelets and the staff and asks who they are. And I love that Judah's immediate response is, she has actually been more righteous than I. She has been more loyal to the family than I. She has been more loyal to the covenant than I in this moment. And it, it's going to be this, this first moment for Judah of like this teaching for him of what, what comes first, what is most important. And it is law and it is covenant and it is family. The sad thing is... Um, what happened right before that is going to also show us um, that part of, of Judah where he's also willing to walk away from Joseph. And what we love about this little interlude is the lesson that it teaches about God. Because you would look at Tamar's life and say, well, that can't be fixed. Once Judah sent her away, 
and had moved on, no one could redeem that for her. That was unfixable, what was going on there. And I love that through it all, God is working. And we love what the Torah says about this. And we love what um, our favorite Bible scholar, Alfred Edersheim, says about this. Um, Alfred says that it's interesting to watch in both the story of Tamar and also as we're going to watch in the story of Joseph, right? Who, who again experiences that same thing from Judah. He is not loyal to his family or to that covenant responsibility for family because he's going to put Joseph in the pit and in the palace and in the prison and all of those things that seem unfixable, right? And what we love is that all parties in both of these stories were allowed in the free exercise of their own choice to follow their course, ignorant that all the while they were only contributing their share towards the fulfillment of God's purpose. And in this lies the mystery of divine providence. This is our favorite line. We love this line, that it always worketh wonders, yet without seeming to work at all. And um, that sometimes it escapes our observation that silently and unobserved by those who live and act, it pursues its course till in the end, all things are seen to work together for the glory of God and for good to them that love God that are called according to his purpose. And we love that all along God is in this story. God knows Jesus has to come through the line of Judah. He knows about Tamar, he knows that she's been neglected and forgotten and um, that the law has not been fair to her. He knows all along and and he's working wonders even without seeming to work at all. And, and we'll see that again in Joseph's story. This is what the Torah says. It says, the Judah-Tamar interlude is therefore not merely an old tribal tale, because it might seem that way as you read. You're like, and then there's the random story <laughs> thrown in here, okay? But an important link in the main theme, and it's this, to show the steady, though not always readily visible, guiding hand of God who never forgets his people and their destiny. In this story, Tamar is his unlikely tool. What she did fulfilled the requirements of Hebrew law and in addition, appeared to serve the higher purposes of God. So once you get past kind of the cultural weirdness of the story, then you can see her as a hero and you can begin to see this concept of um, the workings of God, Hmm. you know, almost like the hiddenness of him in the story that he's moving through unlikely situations, that he's moving through um, unredeemable and unresolvable situations to bring about his work and his, and his eventual, their eventual destiny. Yep. And I love that now we're going to go into Joseph's story and we're going to watch the same thing. We're going to watch someone who is neglected and who is cast aside, who is treated poorly. And, and you're going to watch that. I love that in every moment I can see Joseph pleading for deliverance from that place. And if you're Joseph, I feel like probably you're like, where is he? Like, is he ever going to show up? Because first he's in the pit. And then when you think there might be deliverance in the pit, he's going to be sold to this slave caravan and he's going to go to the palace. And although he does well in the palace, 
it's not home. It's not his dad. It's not his family. It's not his dream of what he thought his life would be. And it's a really hard situation yeah. too. Like he's like he lives yeah. there with Potiphar's wife, and he's like, he, you yeah. know, you have it's not an ideal situation on. at all. Yep. And I just imagine him all the way through being like, "Where is God in this?" And I, and I think Tamar probably said that same thing. Where is God in this? And it is that one line that we loved that just when it seems like he's not working or he's not there, that he, he is working in the waiting, even when we can't see him. And I love that we see that so clearly in Joseph's story. So maybe we just start right in Genesis 37 and um, think about uh, this little family and all these 12 boys, right, that, we're, that are all together. And the youngest of them, Joseph, has this dream and in the dream, he has two dreams, actually. Um, he's going to have this dream that for some reason, he is going to be in charge of the family. Yeah. Which seems not right because he's the, he's not, it's not even like he's the second son. He's like the last son. Um, I guess there's one. Under him. Right under him. But he's Almost, right yeah, at he's the very born, yeah. bottom. And even, it, yeah, and it's like, even, uh, he has these dreams and I don't know, maybe you shouldn't say those dreams and maybe as a, he's 17 years old, you find out, and maybe he said them in a way that was kind of like <laughs> a little bragging. I don't know. But even his dad, even his dad says like, Joseph, why are you telling those dreams? Like I, like that doesn't seem like something that's going to be possible, you yeah. know, and that nobody else seems to, to see it, but he had them. He had mm-hmm. the dreams. He knew what was going to, you know, to come about, yeah. but the rest of the brothers seem to be so mad about it. They even call him the dreamer when he shows up, you know, yeah. they're just like, they want nothing to do with him. Yep. And so they put him in the pit, right? And then I do love that it is Judah in verse 26 that is like, maybe we should not kill him and hide his blood. Like at least, you know, within Judah, there is some sense of goodness, you yeah. know, but what if we just sell him? He says, right. I, I don't care if we keep him same as Tamar. Let's, I'm just going to send her back to her dad's house. Let's just sell him. And then we don't have his blood on our hands, but we also don't have to have him in the family, right? We'll just send him on his way. And the brothers were content. And so they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And he's going to go to Egypt. And they go back and tell the dad, Joseph is gone. And they put the blood on his coat. And um, as far as Jacob knows, that is now the end of Joseph. And then we get Tamar's story. And then we're going to go and follow this story of Joseph. And it tells us that Joseph was brought down in verse one to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him. And then in verse two, We're going to see this really interesting line. And in the journal, you're going to see there's three places we just want to make sure you notice. Because I do think that that probably is Joseph's question is, where is the Lord in this? Yeah, and I think one of the things that you might do as you look at the story, particularly because you know that God is in it. You know, I I think it'd be really hard for Joseph to see God in it when he's in the bottom of that pit, Mm. you know. 
But us looking back, we might be able to like look at it and and maybe in the journal you want to kind of write like, wait, where do you see God? The almost the hiddenness of God still moving and working. Uh, for example, let's just give you a couple examples and then you can find them as you read. But mm-hmm. in the pit story, for example, in 37, back in 37, um, what about the fact that Judah is pricked in the heart to like not kill him? Right? Mm-hmm. Could that not be God working through Judah or Reuben when he does the same thing? Or what about the fact that a caravan just happens to show up right at the in at the opportune time? You know, yeah, that happens to be going to, to Egypt. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right where you where we start need to get seeing. Joseph. You know. <laughs> and I love when it says in thirty nine verse two, and the Lord was with Joseph, because Joseph would have said no. And also as we read the story, we're like, no, because I'm sure Joseph was praying for deliverance in the pit, right? Just Lord, deliver me from this. And being sold to slaves does not feel like a deliverance in that moment. And I love when whoever's writing this is like in verse two, just in case you don't know, in case you're worried about what's going on, the Lord was with Joseph. It tells us right at the beginning. And sometimes in verse three, the next one in the palace, it says, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that's interesting that somebody else can see it. Joseph might not be able to see it in his own story yet, you know, but he can see it. He can see like you have some divine providence, yes. some gift, something that's happened. And Joseph's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I am a slave. I am not at home. I have brothers who tried to kill me. Like, I, no, I'm the Lord is not, not in my me. story. Right, yeah. right. But you love that it says, um, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And in verse four, and Joseph found grace in his sight as he served him. And in verse five, It came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. And we just love the thought that because the Lord was with Joseph, he was able to to bless everyone he associated with, that he became a blessing even in that time when he was surely questioning if the Lord was with him. And then you remember what happens He's working there and things seem to be going good. And you almost feel like he had been delivered, maybe is what you would think. And then Potiphar's wife comes and we read that whole story of what happens there. And again, he's unfairly accused and he's unfairly treated and he will end up in prison. And again, maybe a point there too, if he really had been adulterous with Potiphar's wife, Potiphar would have killed him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Instead, he puts him in prison. And so, again, you can kind of see, like, even though Joseph would say, like, I'm in jail. God is not I know, in and this I was story. Doing, and it's I like, was doing what was right. right. Like, I, I stayed chaste. I, I was did the everything good I was kid. I was the do. good kid. <laughs> and, and now, for, somehow I got in prison. And I love in verse 21, again, that the narrator is like, but the Lord was with <laughs> Joseph. Do you love that the narrator just wants to keep making sure you know, but, but don't worry. The Lord was with Joseph and he showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And in verse 23, the keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. And I love that all the way through this, 
we are being reminded that even in the pit, in the palace, in the prison, even in these moments where life is so hard, the Lord can be there. He can be in those moments. And just like we wrote down, he's working wonders without seeming to work at all. And how often has that been true in your story and in my story? Yeah. And, and you, those who've read this, who've read the book of Genesis, and we'll get into this next time to see the resolution and see when all of the lessons are learned and the looking back. But I think it's really powerful to, to, to look at the fact that like he's still in prison and yet the Lord prospered the prison. Mm. The story's not fully resolved yet, but God's still in the pit with him. And he still is in the palace with him. And he still is in the prison with him in their un- working the resolution, yeah. but prospering it along the way. Um, and I love that as we get into 41, we're going to watch God working with Joseph now. And this is where all of a sudden everything is going to start falling into place. And you remember what happens. Pharaoh has a dream and they don't know. No one knows what to do with this dream. But then someone's like, oh, I vaguely remember this guy in the prison. Two years ago. Yes. Remember he interpreted the butler's dream. Yes. Our family likes this part a whole lot because <laughs> the butler is the one who lives. But then, um, but the butler forgets him. He tells him like, when you get out, will you tell yes. Pharaoh about me and yes. tell him I've, I've, someone's done me dirty? I'm not yes. a bad guy. And he's like, I got you. And it's two years later that he like, oh, oh. wait, there, there was this guy, yes. you know? And all of a sudden, Joseph is going to come and there is going to be this dream that happens. And it's so interesting to watch how God is going to work in this story and in the hearts of the people who are in the story, because first of all, um, Pharaoh calls for Joseph and he tells him to come. He says, I've dreamed a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard that maybe you can. And I love when Joseph first tells Pharaoh, it is not in me, but God will give you an answer of peace that immediately Joseph could have looked out for himself, right? He could have looked and he has every right to. He's gone to the pit. He's gone to this slave train. He's gone to prison. That It might have been in his nature to be like, God has forgotten me. And so I won't give glory to God. But I love that he says to Pharaoh, it's God who will give you the answer right now. And again, the Lord is with Joseph, he's just working in him in that moment. And maybe that's just like a, a great, like, uh, I don't know what you say, attribute to try. And, I mean, I think Joseph makes it through the pit and the palace and the prison because he keeps looking for God in those places. Yes. Like he's not quite looking for the resolution, but he begins to look for where are you in this current situation. Yes. And then I love that. That's what he wants to teach Pharaoh. He's like, let me show you where God is. God is going to give the answer. And then Pharaoh tells him these two dreams back to back, right? He's had these two dreams back to back. And in 25, Joseph says chapter 41, verse 25, God has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do, which what God's about to do is going to be hard. And I love that that it's showing us this character of God, the kindness of God to be like, this is what is about to happen. And I'm giving you opportunity to prepare for it. And then again, in 28, he tells him again, this is the thing that I'm trying to tell Pharaoh, what God is about to do 
He is showing unto Pharaoh. He, he, he's trying to tell you what's about to happen. And then in 32, he tells him the reason why the dream was doubled, why it was given unto you twice. It is because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. And I love that. He's like, let me show you where God is in this story. And even in the hard thing. And it's interesting that Joseph saying it to Pharaoh but it makes me feel like the Lord should say, Joseph, now go say that same line in the mirror. I want you to go to the mirror and say, let me show you what God's about to do. Like you had these dreams and you had them so I could show you what I'm about to do. And I think that's just true of everybody. How neat to like consider what is it? If, even if I'm in a pit or a prison, mm. What is it that God is about to do? What is it that he's working? What is it that he's preparing me for in these places? Yes. And I love that he says um, in 38, Pharaoh says to his servants after the whole conversation is over, can we find such a one as this is a man in whom the spirit of God is? And I love that thought that it's almost as if he's like, how did we find this boy, and also he's kind of unconventional. Like this is a kid who was cast out by his family, who we bought as a slave, who has served time in prison. And yet somehow he has the spirit of God in him. And he says in 39, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, God has shown you all of this. And there's no one as discerning or as wise as you are. And so I'm going to put you over my house. And it makes me think to myself, is that true about trials in our life? When mm. we allow God to be part of those trials, does it give us an increase of the spirit of God? Does it make us more discerning and more wise in a situation than we would have been had we not had the trial. And I think of a time many, many years ago, I was serving as the Relief Society president in my ward. And um, we had this situation where we had five mothers give birth to babies who died in an 18 month period. And it was really, really hard. Um, it was a time when we were praying for miracles and deliverance. And yet we lost every one of those babies. And this was something we talked about in primary classes and in young women's classes and um, these prayers that, that seemed to be unanswered. And I'll never forget one of the moms. I was at her house shortly after her baby passed away. And, and this baby was 18 months old about when he passed away. And this mother had spent those 18 months in just caretaking for this baby. That was what her life was devoted to. And we sat on the porch as they were preparing for his funeral and talked and, and we talked about, she said, I look back at my life and I think to myself, would I have chosen to take away this part of my story? Would I have chosen to say, I wish this would have never happened to our family. Like this was such a hard 18 months. And, and you wish you could just say you had never experienced this part that it could be taken away from you. And it was so tender because she said um, to me in that moment, never, I would never have chosen to not have this part of my story because of what I know about Jesus now 
compared to what I knew of him before this started. Mm. And I love that thought of listening to Joseph talk to Pharaoh and him over and over saying, God will show you and God will do this and God will prepare you and God has given you this dream because somehow Joseph had come to know God in the pit and in Mm -hmm. the prison and in the palace. He had come to know him and it had made him have an increase of that spirit and to be discerning and wise. And, you know, I think of those five moms who lost those babies now and they are some of the wisest women that I know and um, so discerning about who God is in the character of God and his goodness in a life, but also um, that um, what they know about Jesus and what they testify about Jesus because of how they experienced him in that time. And I, I just think that is beautiful. And for those of us who are in the midst of a trial and who wonder where God is, right now and also how will we make it through and and for those of us who it seems like God can't redeem what seems unredeemable or that he can't resolve what seems unresolvable but to realize that we are maybe being tutored in this time and the gift although it may not be exactly what we want will still be beautiful in the end yeah, because maybe Joseph can go back to that pit one day and see it as a holy place. Mm. And he can go back to the prison one day, you know, maybe yeah. not when he was was in it, but yeah. later can go back to those places and say, this is where I learned who God was. Yeah. And this is where, and like those moms that you're talking about, he can now teach Pharaoh to see it because he was taught to see it. And it becomes like he... I mean, he's going to become someone who will who will save the whole nation of Egypt, you yeah. know, but only because of the lessons that he learned, you know, in those places where he felt Yeah, you know, I'm forgotten. trying to think of a quote from Elder Faust, and I, I can't think of enough words to bring it up, but I am going to put it in, we'll put it in the newsletter and on the blog where he talks about that those places are the places where God becomes real to us, that that he um, is defined for us in our life is that place where faith is forged. And I think that is so true here that Joseph had come to know something because of the pit and the prison and the palace. And we're going to watch that discernment and that increase of the spirit and that wisdom lead to deliverance. Although it is not the deliverance that maybe Joseph had been praying for in the pit. Yeah, or expecting. Yeah, and I love that we leave off right here in the middle, in the middle of the Mm -hmm. story, that it's unresolved, that we we don't get to know what happens because so many of us are in the middle. And who is the God of the middle moments? Who is the God that shows up and how does he show up there? And who do we put our hope and trust in? And I love that that is where this lesson leads us. And to see even, you know, yes, he can redeem the unredeemable. We saw that in Tamar's story. We saw the whole mm. thing like in one chapter, right? Watch how he redeemed and resolved the unredeemable and unresolvable. And we'll see it at the end of Joseph. But right now we see that God can bless the unblessable places 
also, mm -hmm. right, in, in the middle. So, Yeah, it's so good. So next week we'll finish this story of Joseph, and there are just going to be so many lessons to look forward to there. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>